We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. doesn't get you fired up for a Thursday night kickoff against Krasnodar in the cold of Russia, then I'm afraid nothing will. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. I would say we are concerned about the podcasting schedule involved in having Thursday night football, but this podcast does not adhere to a schedule. That's right. We are our own men. We are our own podcasters. We bow to nobody's schedule. Tim bows to nobody at all. That's why he's not on the podcast today, even though we held it till today so that everyone could be on. Thanks, Tim. To be fair, life gets in the way sometimes. Uh, but Paul's here. You can find him on Twitter at Positive My Pants. Welcome back, Paz. Woohoo! Woohoo, indeed. And Clive is here. You can find him on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Hello, Clive. 
Hello, looking forward to FC Carrier Bag. Can't wait. Yep, FC Carrier Own Bag, because at this level of football, we do not have people to do it for you. Um, okay, so uh, we're going to touch on the game a bit. We're going to touch on the manager stuff a bit. We're going to touch on the ownership stuff a bit, and then we're going to do a little bit of an FA Cup preview. So buckle in. It's four hours of great podcasting coming your way. Um, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed the Europa League anthem uh, that we started the podcast with. We're going to be hearing a lot more of that. Uh, in our imminent future. Uh, but let's start with the game, then a few takeaways. So first things first, uh, we started really well. It didn't appear that Everton were too interested in putting up much of a fight. And Paul, um, we opened the scoring through Hector Bellerin. Uh, no thanks to Danny Welbeck, or thanks to Danny Welbeck, if you think that was just like the cleverest dummy of all time. Maybe you can just give me a little bit of your take on Danny's day. I mean, he's definitely fighting for the starting position up front uh, in the cup final. He clearly causes problems, and we look a little more dangerous when he starts, but he is not a reliable guy in front of goal. How do you feel he did on the day? Uh, well, certainly you got to differentiate the difference between how Danny played and how the Danny Welbeck thing works. Fair point. I think the, dyna- the, the dynamic's pretty good. Obviously, he fluffed the first one. It was a bit behind him. And then the, the second time he fluffed it was for the goal for Bellerin. Um, and that was really bad. That would have been, I think that could have really impacted him had that just gone uh, trickled off into the distance and we struggled for the rest of the game. But uh, fortunately, Bellerin swooped in to conquer. So all's well that that ends well. So, uh, yeah, he's obviously struggling a little bit to to find a bit of confidence and to, to uh, really get his eye in. And I think we've seen, we've obviously seen that over the last few seasons. Um interestingly, I mean, he can score spectacular goals. And as I said before, have a bunch of very, very near misses that could have been wonderful goals um, to behold and for highlights reel. But he's always like a few inches off. But in this case, he was a few inches off connecting with the ball, which is like yards and yards off. And he skied a few, he skied a few recently. Yeah, it was it was a bit Gervinho against Bradford. Um, yeah. and, and it maybe affected his whole day. He just didn't seem as sharp. I mean, the fact no. of the matter is, though, his running, his burst, his ability to get to balls that look like lost causes, I mean, he definitely gives the defense something different to think about, and he can still be a threat in the air, as we've seen. He had a, a headed goal recently. So, you know, I, obviously, I think everybody knows I'm going to say I'd be inclined to stick with Welbeck. But, Clive, um, one player who I think is putting himself right in position to have starting berth for the FA Cup uh, player who was excellent again on the day, and that's Hector Bellerin. And as great as Ox looked at right wing back when he played there, it seems like Bellerin has really sort of figured out how to play this role. He got a goal. He had a couple other near chances. He's causing problems in the attacking half now, which he wasn't doing earlier, and, and his uh, defensive side of his game looks to be coming back to its best. Is Hector Bellerin the right wing back for our immediate future for you? Yeah, he is, and he, and he always has been. I mean... You've you heard me say it before. I, I just think he's suited well, to that I have, position. But since no one listens to the podcast, you know, <laughs> I'd like to hear you say it again. <laughs> I'll say it again then. You know, he, he just made for that position, right? And um, people were a little bit sharp to write him off. And I, I don't really know why, really. He had a couple of bad moments. Nothing nothing worse than anybody else, in my opinion. And, um, and he's got his confidence back, and he's starting to beat people with the ball now. He's always been quite a good runner off the ball. But he's starting to move it past people with the ball. 
and he can just make repeat runs. He absolutely makes that position work in a slightly different way to Monreal, who's who looks for wall passes, looks for combinations. Bellerin sees space, sees the future, sees the, the offensive triggers. He sees when he's midfield and receives it on his back foot, and he goes, and he goes early, and he drives. And, he, and what you do when you commit to your run, you sometimes dictate the game. So if, you, if you're a midfielder and you see a player committing to his run, that basically means you, you, you see him in your eye line and you give him the ball. When you half commit to your run, Sometimes people look at you and say, ah, oh, he doesn't fancy it. I'll turn out go the other way. Now Hector's committing to his offensive running and he's going on the third man run. If he misses the first run, he then changes the angle when he goes again. He comes inside. He loiters on the edge of the area to stop the break. He's just constant movement. And and I and the Ox is one of my favourite players and he can definitely do that role and there are times we need a dribble. But I I do believe his position is going to be in centre midfield at some point. He just needs to fix on it if he's going to hopefully be with us. But Hector's athletic ability to do repeat runs and not break down with injury is uh, the key. And I, I think he's got the spot nailed for yeah. the weekend. And, and his burst seems to be back. I think after he came back from the concussion, it didn't look like he necessarily had the burst. And there was some speculation that it might have been uh, related to the extra muscle he's put on this season. But the, the, the burst seems to be back for him. And it's just great to see him playing at his best and thriving in the right wing back position because... I think when you have a player his age who is as good as he is already, you don't want to suddenly make him the second choice in a position. I mean, what you're basically doing is creating a problem in a position where you don't have to have one. No matter what you think of Ox, Bellerin's a fantastic player. If Ox is a great option for us, he needs to be a great option somewhere else. But deciding all of a sudden that one of your best young assets is now going to be a backup to another young asset is not really quality squad building. It's not great planning. Um, doesn't make sense to have a Hector Bellerin as your backup right wing back. Um, especially especially when he's got a six-year contract well, in his back pocket. Yeah, That's well, a, the, the other thing is, Clive, I mean, especially when, look, if we were a dominant team at all the other positions and we were 10 points clear winning the league, you could say, well, Hector's got to live with it. You know, we found a better option. But in a team that's clearly got a lot of missing parts and isn't close to a title, you just give Hector his position and, and you find another home for Ox one way or the other, um, especially given that Hector has proven to be far more reliable from a fitness standpoint. Paul, this was a game that started with Everton not looking super interested. We were creating opportunities. It looked like we were going to be able to score pretty much when we wanted, and it didn't look like they were going to give us min, uh, too many problems. So explain to me, or maybe just theorize for me, what plans you think Koscielny made that conflicted with the FA Cup final such that he felt the need to get himself disqualified? Ah, uh, the poor fella. Seriously, my heart I mean, do bleeds you think, Do you from... think he had a wedding? Do you think, like, like was he invited to a stag do? Like, what What was the... I can't laugh. I, no. can't, I can't even make a joke about the poor fella. He must be so gutted. I mean, he's, bas- he's basically been captain for the season. Um, it wasn't. It was, certainly wasn't a tackle made by a guy who didn't care about the outcome of our season, or playing in the FA Cup. I mean, he went. It, in it was the craziness of the game it was in. I mean, look, if that's against Chelsea mid-season in a game that you know you feel is going to be hotly contested, and he just loses perspective a little bit. I mean, we'd we'd be furious, of course, but you you can kind of understand it. But in the context of a game that felt so casual it just seemed so such a strange decision and this is a player who has a bit of a history of making a few boneheaded decisions in in key moments well okay 
Um, and I love Kajal, by, by the way. I know you do. I know you do. I think boneheaded, probably a little harsh. Um, All right, mistakes. Mis- yeah, 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 And I get it. When you're a central defender and from. you make a mistake, they're going to stand out, yeah. right? You give away a penalty. Yeah. You, you know, those those things are, are not hard to miss. Um, sure, sure. This was a weird decision, wasn't it, in the context of the game? It was, but but to me, not that weird. I mean, he's captain. He's he's in there trying to save our season. Um, he's a do or die kind of player. His fitness hasn't been all that. He's kind of continually coming back from something. So gauging the speed of a game. And in hindsight, we say, well, Everton weren't all that and they were at 80 or 90 percent. But that is a bit in hindsight. You can't take that for granted at that point in the game. Um, so in hindsight, yeah, he, he shouldn't have done it. But I kind of understand why he was charged up. And, uh, you know, why he he bailed in there at a rate of knots and maybe even why he got it so wrong. I just think he's been going out and coming back into the side so often. And maybe he took the responsibility of the day too strongly on his own shoulders and overcooked it. Because I, I hear what you're saying, especially this season, he's made a number of decisions that were rash the the problem with his style of play is if your judgment's off at all you you can look like an idiot because i mean how many times over the last few seasons has he had those do or die his big toe gets there before he's always against the fastest guy he's always his style is to be proactive to take that risk and nine times out of ten 19 times out of 20 we're, we're going on about how Koscielny had X, Y, and Z in his pocket all in the same game. And, and when you're just that little bit off or you're overcooked, overkeen, uh, do or die, try and save the day, I think that's what you risk. Yeah, Clive, I want to get your opinion on it. But before you give me your opinion on Koscielny's frame of mind there, just to clarify, well, Paul, you first, did, did you think it was a red card? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'd, you know, we'd be asking for it if it was the other way yeah. around. Live and it looked worse in slow motion from the angle where you see the ball, where yeah. you kind of see them run towards you, and the ball's already gone. I mean, he, the height of the leap it, is a problem. If he if he does it at pace, but he's on yeah. the ground the whole time, I think he gets away with it. Clive, Clive, before you give me your opinion on on the decision by Cost, do you think it was a red card? Just honestly, just I think um, it was from the side. It was fast. It was from the side. It wasn't front on. He wasn't two-footed. It was a lunge, and it could have gone either way, and it, and it went against us. Last he's about game six of the season, inches off the ground is the problem, right? I mean, I mean, yeah, he's, he's, he's not high. in control. He's over the ball. If you look at the rule book, that you could justify it. You could also look at other situations quite similar, and it's a yellow card. I think um, it's, it's very fifty-fifty, but it doesn't matter. What what does matter is I look at this player, right, and um, you look at his. Look at what he can do. You look at his speed. Look at his agility. You look at his ability to to go really tight with people and take the ball from them and tear through them that way. The way he, sometimes he reads it, drops deep, and wins the races on his back foot. This guy can can do it all. And the, the one thing that stops him, in my opinion, from being Real Madrid Barcelona quality, which he isn't far off of, is he has moments of derailment, and there are huge moments of derailment. I mean. The, the Bayern Munich away game, a lot of suspicions. He has like a, a dead leg. He comes off, the team derails. So he, there's a, there is a school of thought growing. I'm telling you this now. I'm not saying I totally agree with it, but it's on my timeline today. 
is a school of thought growing that he bails on the team. He bails on the team and he has, he's got a mental weakness there. And, I, and I, I'm not saying I totally am with it, but I do think there's something that stops him going to Barcelona or going to Madrid. And it, and it, it's something mental there that's just not allowing him to be consistent, really consistent, and to be seen as truly world-class. I mean, most Arsenal fans rate him very, very highly. But outside of the club, a lot of people rate the two Spurs boys better. They That's don't see him in the crazy, same light man. that we do. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes you could take a deep breath and step back, step back and say, okay, what does he do? What does he do? To me, he holds us together because we overburden him tactically. We overburden all our centre-halves and he's our best one. But you also have moments where I don't think he handles pressure very well. I don't think he handles stress very well. This is not the first time we've seen these derailed moments. You know, and it's not a criticism, it's an observation. Right, and it's a debate, and there is debate out there right now. So, um, I think it's a huge blow if you're the captain of the team for the whole season. You got, you got, and he's not a kid; he's thirty years of age. You got to ask yourself a question: What have you just done? Mm -hmm. What have you just done? I I mean, the problem is, and we've gone into this. Lauren Koscielny is an exceptional defender in a system that, for years, has made defenders look terrible if you can look world class in arsenal's back four and i realize we're not in the back four anymore but he has looked world class in a back four that specializes in humiliating defenders Um, a system (laughs) that specializes in humiliating defenders um and so i think you get bonus points um for for being good in that system so I mean, he, he gets sent off. I mean, I think we still won this game something like 3.1 to 1.1 or something on XG. I mean, we still created chance after chance with the 10 men. It was a good performance across the board. I don't think there's a whole lot to get stuck into, so I'm going to go a little free swim here for you guys just really quickly before we move on to the issues that are probably more important and the ones that interest people more. Paul, do you have any other issues from the game or topics from the game you want to address quickly? Look, I think uh, Ozil's form is starting to hit. Yes, exceptional at times. Now, again, you need it, you got to measure it against the opposition. When when the opposition are wearing flip flops and have sand grains in the taint of their arse, I don't know if you can say the taint of their arse, but anyway, um, you you, you got to put a little asterisk against the performance. But he's definitely reaching that point where I feel bad about some of the things I've thought about him recently. Um, I think, you, you know, Ramsey's goal is kind of talking about it being in the sloppy time of the game. But man, what a cracker. And first goal in, what, 18 months or something? Anyway, awfully long time. Uh, March last year. Yeah, maybe that'll crack his, his, uh, his goal scoring open. So I, I actually think... I agree with the summary that in you could dismiss the game. I actually think there's loads to talk about in the game, but uh, I defer to the fact that there's so much else to talk about outside of the game. Yeah, thought, we're a few days past it, and I think people have kind of moved yeah, on psychologically. Plus, have, yeah. I, I mean, a lot of the things I think you could talk about from the game in some ways are just re- repetition of things we've been discussing over the past few weeks. You know, the, ex- the excellence yeah. of Shaka, um, the importance yeah. of Alexis, the way yep. the system has made us look defensively, Rob Holding's performances, things like that. Um, check. Yeah, Petter Check. As in Petter Check. 
Yeah, no, know, I agree do, with you. I mean, it, it's yeah. that's going to be another issue too. Uh, what do we do with Chesney? And uh, does Czech have another good season in him after a little dip in form midseason? Do we need a guy who can come off his line more to help support the way we want to play? Uh, we still don't know if we'll be in a back three next. next yeah, season. and he's de- he's definitely made his point to those who thought he was he was past it and a liability. I mean, I think he he's really anchored us, and it sets up that delicious question or not so delicious question about the FA Cup final goalkeeper, which I assume is going to be Ospina. But is Ospina no, back? No, 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 no. Is he back? Is Ospina fit? No. Well, that I, could I be think... the that could be Wenger's excuse if he needs one. Well, no, well, I don't I, think he's going to play. We we'll, we'll come to the we'll come to the cup. Um, Clive, do you have do you have any more takeaways from from the game? I mean, it's uh, it's the the second goal. I think speaks for the quality of the game. When Everton basically decided, well, if they're going to score here, they're going to score and just stop playing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a, a school lunchtime goal. Yeah, we in, in the playground, right? So um, it looked too easy. One thing I will say that and we had seventeen shots on goal. And I know it's a ten men game for most of it, but. Everton had 22 shots on our goal, and it's still something that we haven't managed to fix. It probably isn't the best game to judge, given the fact we're a man down. But it is showing the value of Peter Cech, who had seven shots on target to save. And, you know, there was a theory. When he came to us, we looked, uh, much of your point earlier, that we we exposed him. We we defend with two men, whereas the Chelsea team he left actually defend with a back four. And um, and maybe moving to a back three, there's more bodies around him and he can take his ankles off of the bodies in front of him rather than seeing no bodies, one body in front of you, potentially taking shots. And he's been done a lot outside the area. Now he's making saves. He seems to be a better goalkeeper in crowd scenes, if that makes sense, when you can, we can take his position and read round defenders. Mm-hmm. But he's definitely looked better in this with these bodies around him, he's definitely a little better. And there's, it's an interesting thing. I hadn't thought of it before, but you know the way Chelsea's sitting with John Terry and etc. sitting quite close, he he's looked very good. What we do, we're completely different. We just we we just spread the we spread the game. We have high and wide, and and he's looked a bit exposed, especially outside the box. But yeah, I I think he's come back really well. And, um, I see him. I see him playing in the cup final, definitely. Yeah. Um, all right, well, I mean, look, just, just the one thing I will say in response to the, the chances we conceded. I mean, Everton finished, according to Kaylee Graphics on Twitter, with uh, 1.1 xG plus a penalty. So, you know, while that's not nothing, you know, the, the shots we faced overall, uh, at least according to the xG model, not necessarily the highest uh, scoring likelihood. So, you know, I, I mean, look. That's overall, fair point. That's fair point. You know, overall, considering we were playing with ten men too, I don't think it was it was so poor, and we continued to look dangerous throughout the game. You know, my one takeaway, and and it's kind of weird because he scored a just sensational goal, um, and laid on a beautiful through ball for uh, Ozil to run onto and not quite finish uh, with his yep. left foot from the channel. But I thought Ramsey was kind of loose with his passing, and the one thing that that frustrates with me frustrates me with him is he he just has to be a better passer. He has to be a little bit more accurate. Um, he gave the ball away with some simple passes on the day, and it's just a little bit frustrating. I mean, Ramsey is a guy who we all really want to get back to that absolute upper echelon level that, that he has demonstrated at times. But I think, you know, to play in midfield for Arsenal, you just have to be a little bit more precise with your passing. And I don't think this was a particularly exceptional day for him passing-wise. Now, look, he did create that chance. He did score a beautiful goal, so I'm not picking on him. I just wonder if, you know, maybe Shaka would be better off with somebody just a little bit more metronomic, maybe a little bit more um, 
reliable in possession passing, and then you push someone like Ramsey forward a little more into that front two where Ozone and Alexis are currently playing, and if Alexis were staying, he gets to play center forward, or the Alexis replacement plays center forward. And then the two ahead of the midfield, it's Shaka plus one, then it's Ozil, Ramsey, and a striker. Uh, would be interesting to see, and that's, of course, dependent upon whether we stay in a back three, which depends on who the manager is going to be, and all kinds of fun stuff for us to figure out over the next few weeks. Let's go into the post-match stuff, drama, narrative, all the fun stuff, the stuff that doesn't require us to be intelligent, but just to spout emotional bollocks. Um, so let's start with the lap of honor slash shame. Uh, Paul, your read on why Arsene Menger did not participate. Um, I know, it seems easy to me. Um, he didn't want it to become a shit fest. Um, I, I think most people would have been it seemed like the atmosphere was pretty mellow, mellow on the day, so he may have made that that decision early. Um, everybody seemed, you know, I'm only watching it on the TV, but everybody seemed, considering all the events, pretty good-natured, pretty good-humored, and knew what the lap of honor was supposed to be. You know, there were people out there, you know, even Gibbs borrowed a kid from somewhere. I was probably the safest thing to do. I think what they should have done was like v- put uh, a Velcro suit on Arson and like Velcroed four or five very young children and a few puppies on him so that people knew to abuse him was to abuse those poor small children. So um, <laughs> it gets it, so it, weird with you sometimes, man. I, I got to say, yeah. whatever you're smoking, I, I wish I could get a prescription for it. Well, you you had about half an hour of me on WhatsApp this afternoon, losing my mind. So you should Fair be enough. well warmed up for this. Oh, um, yes, yes. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, in the end, I, it was kind of a fuss about nothing looking back on it, except it's a sad state that after 20 years, he felt he couldn't go out. Sad for, Sad from, you know, he has a responsibility in that. Uh, the supporters do. Um, that even the team does to some extent, but it is kind of sad that after 20 years, this is the year he can't walk around for a lap of appreciation, even after the shitty season that was in it. It's yeah. sad, sad, sad. I mean, it to me, yeah, it definitely was him saying, look, the players deserve to go bond with the fans and for me to go out there and make this all about me, which inevitably would be, um, would be to give the media ugly scenes to reference in the post-match press conference and, you know, column inches to fill and all kinds of things that the team doesn't need going to a cup final. So while him standing there is something they can write about, it's nothing compared to what might have happened in terms of the reception he would get. I mean, is that it, Clive? Is it just a matter of the manager recognizing that to go on that lap with the fans would have turned it into a circus? Absolutely, and it's a sh- and Paul's right. It is a shame, right? And um, he has become that massive focal point for all our angst and feelings, and and we've ended up finally in the Europa League, and this this has been the post of four or five years, and and but maybe now we're going to face up to some of the things that we need to face up to. So um, it's so, a shame so that he's Clive, behalf. Clive, quick question: me. What do you think would have happened if he had gone on the walk around? Do you think he would have gotten any abuse? I don't know. And that's probably the reason why he didn't go around. He yeah. wasn't sure of the reception he would get. This sounds terrible, and, but I'm going to tell you something, guys. I suspect the kind of people that want to shout obscenities at Arsene Wenger are the people that would have stayed in the stadium in the hopes of having the opportunity to do that 
If you see my point, mm-hmm. the people that want to be on camera holding up banners and want to be on camera flicking bees at arson are the yeah. ones who would have stayed expecting to have the opportunity to do that. And I hate to yeah. say that, but I think, unfortunately, the good-natured people that want to just clap their team and their manager, well, of course, they stayed too. I'm not saying they didn't. I'm yeah. sure the look-at-me attention seekers, and I'm not saying everybody who wants arson out, I, I, I think it's time for change. I'm not saying they all are attention seekers, but I think those people, and we know there is a contingent of them, would definitely have been there. Sorry, yeah. Clive, I didn't mean to interrupt. Also, but, no, but no, you, you, make, you make a great point, and it, yeah, I can continue that. If you think about it, our, our season isn't over, right? So if we all it takes is for 10 signs close together, zoom on the camera, whole new narrative for the week leading up yeah. to a cup final, completely blown us out of the water. And what Fenger's done, he just said, look, we're in a situation. The atmosphere is not great. Some of this is my doing, but we are where we are. I'm not going to make this worse. We have a game to play. I can control. It's very quiet in the club at the moment. I can control the this week's press. I can control the narrative off the pitch if I'm not out there. But that in itself is actually quite sad because, you know, whatever you think of him, 20 years, total devotion. It's a shame we can't do that, but that a lot of his football teams and the fact that Arsenal has grown as a club so much that we keep a filler, even filler stadium like that is a lot down to him. So, um, and, it, and it's sad, really, but that's where we are. And um, that's what happens sometimes when you you bat too long in your innings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I mean, it it's a simple reality that I, I suspect, deeply suspect, that had uh, Atkinson given the penalty and the red card and Burrow puts the penalty away and goes on to score and win and and we finished top four that he may have taken that lap um but you know, <laughs> bloody hope so <laughs> but you know that's not how it happened all right so paul we get to the post-match press conference and there's a couple of things we can take from it but one of the things that i think we absolutely have to focus on is his comment it's interesting his comment that we operated in a horrible psychological environment and that the cloud hanging over his future definitely impacted the team does that lead you to believe that there is uncertainty at board level, that the manager has said, I'm ready to sign, let's announce it, and the board has said, we're not ready to do that yet, and that the manager is basically saying, if they had just let me sign and announce it like I wanted to, the team would have felt less pressure and we might have gotten top four in the end? I mean, is that what he's kind of hinting at, or is it something else entirely? I don't know, but it, it certainly could well be. It uh, certainly hints at regret at at the idea that he or he and the club got it wrong collectively because there's no other conclusion to take. So either uh, – I, I mean I certainly believe that Arson and the club were roughly on the same wavelength um, at the start of the season but but diverged as the season kind of went sour. I suspect they have a lot of things they – need to resolve uh, potential moving of goalposts. But the last couple of months was probably no atmosphere and no environment for them to resolve it. I think they'll end up on the same page by and large. But uh, I think we also get the idea there must be significant tensions behind. You know, I, I didn't pay a lot of mind to the fact that Ivan hadn't talked much at all oh. Or nobody had really talked much apart from Sir Chip's brief comment 
um, over the last few months. But as the last month or two has counted down and there's still basically no comment, um, when one's crying out to be made in terms of support, I mean, they do make comments. Cranky's, cr- uh, Cronky Cranky has made a comment in the last week or so when he needed to about the shares and use enough. So they are capable when, when uh, they see the need. But I think uh, Arson and potentially Ivan are not – there is tension and they're not on the same page. It's not that I don't think it's resolvable. I just think it's probably been a pretty ugly, tense environment to resolve issues on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Arson's comment can and probably did mean a number of things, but it certainly backtracked from what he said all season long. I understand why he claimed it all season long. It was having no impact because he didn't want to get into it. But, you know, there's a big uh, st- saying that and stating that. And also, it's one thing to say it didn't help. He said the horrendous psychological environment. Those are strong words. Uh, and uh, that's, that's pointed at the fans, right? No, no, no. Uh, uh, so it's, that was it's, how I took it, but maybe it's okay. just related back to the same issue of not knowing if your manager's staying or going created a horrendous psychological environment, and that's down. I mean, Paul, if you believe that I, those I comments are linked together, he's, yeah. he's not blaming himself, right? If he, if he had the power yeah. to announce that he was staying and announce that the contract was signed and it was in his hands to do that, then he can't come out and say the cloud over my future impacted us because he's saying it's my fault. So that if, if both of those things are tied together, he's pointing at the board and saying, these guys kept us all in the dark about this. I'm in the same position you guys are. It affected my team, and that's why we st- we finished outside of the top four. Yeah, but I, I do it didn't feel pointed at any one person. It's, it seemed to point at the situation and out to four different parties himself himself and the club, um, something that went on around December, uh, New Year, that you got to think has something to do with a player or the players or some number of players or somebody tapping up players or some shit like that. Uh, The fans for sure, but not necessarily all fans and not necessarily him saying that it's completely unreasonable of all fans, but certainly the fan atmosphere and the media sitting in the the room with him asking the questions. And and I don't think it was specifically him angry and pointing at a, a particular party. I think to me, the tone of it was very much he had stuff on his chest. He'd love to have talked about it more, didn't feel that was the time, but still, this was a kind of a final reckoning from the from the point of view of the league, and he was almost refreshingly open, and you could see that from the journalists. They all felt that rather being a, than being evasive or angry or lots of things, the tone he came across, and certainly what I picked up was he wanted to talk, but uh, I still don't think he's going to talk any time in the next uh, six months or a year and uh, in 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 very detailed terms about what went on maybe we'll mm-hmm. get some clues around the backside yeah um, but yeah I, I don't think he was there to specifically point a finger but he was open about a major issue and he he would have loved to have talked more it certainly seemed like he he had it on the the tip of his tongue. It was on his lips and he just didn't feel he could go further. But Clive, I mean, if this is pointing the finger at the board, if he's saying, hey, I 
I was ready to announce it. I was ready to clear this situation up. The fact that it was hanging over us impacted us. It's out of my, you know, the subtext is it wasn't my choice for this to be hanging over us. You know, he did say earlier in the season to many different times, we'll have an, an answer for you soon. We'll have a resolution for you soon. And it never came. I mean, I guess there's two questions here. One is obviously just what did you make of the comments? But also, do these comments, which seem to be pretty adversarial with respect to the board and, you know, his subsequent, you know, his old chestnut of someday when I can talk about all this, I'll be able to quite, you know, write quite a book and tell you quite a story. I mean, does this lead you to think that there's still maybe a twist in the tail that maybe he won't be kept on? Right. So let me, let me tell you my theory on, on this whole situation. I would love right, it so, if you would do that. Yes, please. All right. So you, you might as well sit down now and get a cigar on. Because well, there goes I my standing thought... podcast host thing. <laughs> I guess I'll get a chair and sit down. I got, I got my dress with a stain on it. <laughs> so I basically, I always felt this was going to be Wenger's last year. And the reason why I felt that, because if you looked at a number of contracts we had coming to an end, I felt, or coming to the last year, that's a great way to hand over the team. You're not you're not hamstringing the next manager. You've got people that are going to be that can be moved on and still get some money back. I always felt that was going to be the way, but then we started to do okay, and I felt something changed. And I think the contract was was offered, but then we had buying away, and buying away destroyed this team, right? Completely destroyed everything. And I felt since that day, Wenger's not been in control of his own destiny. He was managed very sharply in the press conferences by Mark Canella, very sharply. He was he was he was told basically, in my opinion, we're gonna speak to the end of the season. So he's no longer in control of when things can happen. He's always been in control. The whole year he was in control. He decided very similar very similar scenarios. He decided when he was going to do it, and when the club allowed him, allowed him that we won, and he signed late on. And so I've always felt that he's not been in control, and I, and I still feel it's fifty-fifty, right? It's just my own hunch. I, I feel he's not going to be here next year, and, I, and I've always felt it since the start of the season. I think we got cold feet and decided to continue, but now there's a potential split on the board about should he stay or should he go. If he does stay, something needs to change. And so my theory, what's happened in my opinion, like we've, as a club, I've always felt, he said to me two, three years ago, what's Wenger's um, number one achievement? And for me, when you close your eyes and, and you talk about an Arsenal footballer or when Arsenal play football, there's something called the Arsenal way. The way we play, the way we, the way we act, the way we operate. This all encapsulated in the word, the Arsenal way. Right, So the Arsenal way now is becoming very contrary. We seem to be obsessed with doing something different, being different. The whole way we approached the financial fair play, we were the ones that were strongest to be different, hoping that would come and save us. The way we approach our contract situations, Wenger sitting there in a press conference saying, what's the problem? Alexis has got a year to go. Well, everyone knows the unwritten rule in football is you've got to negotiate two plus years out to make sure you protect your most valuable assets. Well, that's, that's deflection, we, to be fair. He, he knows that's not true. I, I don't yeah, believe why, for a second he believes but why that. But why are we any different? So what happens, Elliot, what happens is the rest of the world thinks, what's up with Arsenal? We're just going to attack them. We're going to attack them. We're going to control the narrative. We're going we're gonna to make sure that everyone knows they're unstable. And they've, they've stripped us bare. And we've allowed them to strip us bare. 
by being disorganised, no succession plan, no contractual situations being sorted out, no depth of people in the club. And the Arsenal way now is becoming a bit of a shambles. We look, we're looking quite shambolic before an FA Cup final. Right, so, so we need to stop being contrary, stop trying to be different, and recognise that the game is changing, and we can change with it. It's no shame to do what everyone else is doing. If we'd have done, if we'd have done what everyone else is doing with a back three, we will still be in the Champions League because Liverpool are no great shakes. They had no European games to play, and they still only managed to get there by one point. We've done this to ourselves by not being prepared at the start of the season on the pitch. And off the pitch, we showed how lack of prepared we actually are to for succession. And the only caveat I have in all of this is that maybe Wenger is wanting to stay because he knows there's nothing else there. But if the, if that's the case, that's still his fault. Part of leadership is creating a succession, creating a line of good people to continue on your good work, not making yourself a single point of failure that the moment you're removed, everything falls down. That makes you a bad leader. And, 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 I, and I, I really hope he can sit back one day and, and look at his legacy. But I think we're not quite ready for him to go yet. So if anything this whole season may have done, potentially, rather than a two-year, it might be a one-year with conditions. But if he was to go, it wouldn't surprise me. And that could be dependent on the game on Saturday and how the game goes. Not the result, but how it goes, how we look, how far away we look, what's our performance levels like. And and he, I think he's starting to realise now he cannot control, and the club as well, they cannot control the groundswell of opinion. We are a monster club with a very opinionated fan base, extremely opinionated online, one of the most biggest online followings in the world. And I, you know what? Protests or not, I, I'm glad that people feel this way because we need to make sure that we start to turn the corner and the process of change starts. Because if we don't, we're going to end up like you know lower than Everton and look at Aston Villa. You know, look what's happened to them. We've got to we've got to think carefully. Well, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you enjoy the play? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, look, yeah. That, that, look, that is a rant after my own heart. And and I, I think the one thing that I thought was interesting is he, he rarely gives anything away, Arson, but the one he was in a giving away mood a little bit. And the one thing he did acknowledge is he probably switched to the back three just a little too late. Um, you know, can I, we've can talked, I say one thing? Can I say one more as thing? As many things one as you thing. like, Clive, we're happy to have you. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what. Man. You know, sometimes when you do a team talk, I, I, I manage a team, right? And sometimes when... When you do a press conference, or and I don't, but when you, when you do a press conference, basically what you're doing in that press conference at some point is you're talking to your team. You're saying things in a team about how approach, how we're going to play. You're talking to your players. I felt in this press conference he was talking to the board. He was practicing his speech for the board meeting after the cup final. He is telling them what's happened. And, he's almost, and he almost went too far. He's telling them, this is what's happened. This is why we haven't reached our targets. The situation is partly my doing. He was talking to the board in that in that press conference. Primarily. Well, if so, then the battle lines are drawn, Clive. Because while Absolutely. he acknowledged that he could have switched to a back three sooner, I, I think he lays some of it at their feet with this contract situation. Um, exactly. It, it's interesting stuff. And, and uh, you know, I, I think... <laughs> The only thing I, I really wonder, he's come up with this so many times, oh, when I write a book, it's going to be really interesting. 
I have always believed that Arsene Wenger ran everything at Arsenal Football Club. And if, if he had said, I want to buy X player and I want to spend Y money, that they would have sanctioned it. And the only thing I wonder is, were there some situations where Arsene wanted a player, he agreed to the, the fee that the club wanted for that player, and the board wouldn't sanction it? Because that would definitely change some opinions, I think, if that turned out to be true. Um I'm going to mount just a a brief impassioned defense of Arson, and and that's not my usual position, but just that, all right, it's 75 points. Now, look, we went on a run at the end of the season to put some gloss on it, and there were humiliating losses, humiliating performances. We weren't prepared for the start of the season, which is our own fault. Um, You know, we had the the 10-goal round of 16 experience with with Bayern. I I mean, there were lows in this season, but... The 75 points just points to consistency. We essentially get 1.9 points per game every season, and that's what Arsene Wenger has managed since our last title. And he's exceptionally consistent. And the problem is consistency doesn't excite fans because we don't watch sports for consistency. We watch it for the highs. And, I mean, you could look at Liverpool, who have been just a source of tremendous humor for us and and, – a club that we've said has been in the wilderness for the better part of a decade. But the funny thing is, since we last won a title, they've won an FA Cup, they've won the Champions League, they've finished twice in the league on two separate occasions, one where they had a really exciting season with that Suarez season. I mean, I'm not saying necessarily I'd swap places with them, but those are four things that they did. And, you know, I'd give just about anything for a European Cup at this point. So while they've had some really pathetic seasons and some car crash comedy seasons and been uh, in, in the wilderness for a bit, they've also seen Luis Suarez play for them. They've also seen themselves lift the, the Champions League Cups. So, you know, I mean, it's the problem that, that sports isn't about consistency at a high level. It's about achieving the absolute utmost prizes um, and I think that's what, what sucks for Arson is that what he's done has been remarkable in some ways. I mean, I saw a great tweet that, that said, just remember, everybody, getting into the Champions League once, fantastic accomplishment. Doing it 20 times in a row, commitment to mediocrity. And it's a great point, right? The narrative around us qualifying for the Champions League is not fair vis-a-vis what other... I mean... Manchester United are a shit show. They've spent half a billion dollars and they need to beat Ajax to get into the CL. And if they do, people are going to say, good job, Jose. I mean, it's, it isn't fair. And at the end of the day, Arsene Wenger is not a great tactician. He's just not. He's, he's been a good, consistent manager. He, he has kept his job because the board have continued to allow him to keep his job. If at any point they wanted him out, they could have gotten rid of him. And I just, I question whether anybody who shouts that Arsene Wenger is a cunt would fire themselves from an $8 million a year job, $8 million pound a year job, even better, um, that they love for a place they love at doing a thing they obsess about. No one would do that. So you can't fault Arson for staying and thinking he has the answers. We all ultimately stay too long. We all overstay our welcome at some point at something. And, and that's not on Arson. That's on the board. The lack of stewardship at the top of the club is the reason that this great manager and this great man has been left to languish and be put in a position of bearing the brunt of everybody's abuse. And that is sad, and that is unfortunate, and that is not Arson's fault. He has flaws as a manager, but the fact that he has been there too long is not his fault. Um, And that brings us to the next point, the point about ownership, because Usmanov made what some think is an illusory bid, a bid as a show of, you know, a final throw of the dice so that he can jump ship and head over to Everton, the next super club. Um, 
But it, it raises an interesting question, and I, there is some speculation that Kroenke would be willing to sell, even though he says he wouldn't, but not to Usmanov. And I guess my question for you, Paul, is simply, well, two, two questions I want to address. One, to what extent do you think the struggles at Arsenal and the failure to get back to the top is down to the owner himself? Uh, well, massively. Um, because at the end of the day, you can see that Arson has defined success as top four or better. And you think that comes uh, from the top down? Well, That's his remit, clearly. essentially. Yeah. Well, clearly. I guess my now, question to you, though, is do you that... think another manager could have taken the clubs, the squads we've had over these years, including this one, and won a title with them? Uh, well, some managers could have, but but it's a risk-reward thing. That same manager could have blown up at the club. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, the one thing, uh, while uh, I guess my feeling on Arson is he's 100% committed to us getting top four or better, and he's 100% committed to wanting the club to improve. And that's his definition of doing his job. Another manager coming in will may well f- fully define himself by winning the title or dying. And that's a different paradigm. Uh, Arsene al- always talks like a man who has years yet to win the trophy, right? He's going to try and win it every year when you listen to him talk. But success or failure is I got, I got fourth again and I left the club stronger than the year before by his internal metrics and i think i think arson's a very sincere guy i think he sleeps okay at night on the basis that he did get us top four and that he believes he's leaving us in a better position each year than the year before and that's and Kroenke might be okay with that as a definition um who's to say that maybe over the last X number of years, they haven't been right. It's just they've been a little safe. And in the last year or two, they needed to ratchet it up, which was always my feeling, which was, okay, Arson, you've earned this, right? To me, he's earned everything up till the last two years. But last year and this year, he's fallen short of what he should have been trying to do. I, don't, I didn't see enough ambition. I didn't see enough ambition during the summers to go for the win. I saw ambition for building the club and keeping us stable and moving us forward and making us better in a very broad sense in his, by his metrics. You could see that he genuinely thought he was making the club better each year. But the last two years, I think that's fallen short. And it certainly hasn't been replaced by a, a do or die, we're going to win this damn thing now. And that's what he needed to have done over the last two years. I think he had earned that right. I'd defend his, his tenure right up until the last year or so but he needed to really go for it last year and then again this year because all of these contracts were coming up all these players were coming up yeah i can uh, i can can i just yeah. say one thing i this season really crystallized in my mind the issues with arson as as a manager at this stage of his career because when things started to go wrong paul for the first time, he really looked out of answers, and he was too yeah. late to come to the back three solution. Too slow um, to respond. He was too slow to respond. Yeah. He stuck with things like Giroud up front or Coughlin in midfield because they felt safe or because he felt like he could he could eke out what he needed to with that, and I think it backfired and he did, for him. He didn't even make the back three move for a reason 
that would say he had the finger on on how to win. He 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 said it multiple times. He did it just because it was something different to do to help yeah. with confidence. He, he, he was didn't a, move the to last it. thing on his list of things to try. Not I, a, I strongly suspect it's the formation du jour and the players all wanted to go I, to I that, suspected that formation. You know, the first game we played in that formation, who was it? Was it? Was it Burrow? Middlesbrough. Yeah, right. If you remember, yeah. the team really went nuts yeah. at full time and celebrated lustily yeah. that win on the pitch. And I wonder if they maybe did that because they wanted the manager to see that they could that they could win in that formation. But uh, let's not go down uh, really, that road. We got more we got to get to. Yeah, I, I'll just quickly say yeah. when we did the four four one one against City, I mean, you could, there were plenty plenty of coverage from players where you could see this was something they had been advocating advocating in some form or other. I think both changes from his 4-2-3-1 were very much... Uh, I'm not saying he was forced into it. I'm saying he was forced into it by situations to make a move that the players would embrace. And he made that move to get the to for the sake of the players, for the sake of their confidence. So, yeah. anyway, that's and, and just so, look, I mean, he, he made some decisions this season that I think to me put a line under the fact that maybe it's it's a little beyond him now. I thought the decision to bench Alexis for Liverpool but leave him on the bench and bring him in as the savior at halftime was a horrendous managerial move by him. It showed no commitment to his, quote, punishment for Alexis. Um, but then it also called into question why why you don't start him altogether. I mean, just an example of, of moves he's made this season that made me think maybe we're a little bit past it here. And Clive, I want to come to you on, on the ownership issue. I mean, my, my question yep. is, look... If you think we have a good enough squad to challenge for the title, and if you think the squad composition is down to the manager, and if you think another manager potentially could have won a title with this squad, then my question to you would be, well, I am no fan of Stan Kroenke's. Why are we pointing the finger at Stan Kroenke? Because what we have is a manager problem, first and foremost, and an ownership problem, second. So is that fair, or is there more to it than that? Yeah, there's more to it. Right? So in my opinion, we have a problem and we have a culture problem a hierarchy right? so, problem was that and we the have a little internet problem, a little internet little. Bit, bit there so could did you yeah, say a hierarchy, sorry, a hierarchy okay a hierarchy a hierarchy problem yeah and a culture problem right so and it's the culture of to be successful you don't have to win right so and that's not just for arsenal by the way we've got liverpool uh, managers and coaches jumping up and down the sideline for coming forth we used to be mocked for that now people recognize that it's an important thing to be at the top level of competition, right? So, so what's what's happening in the Premiership, right? So you spoke about seventy-five points, right? So, um, yes, yeah, that's that's more points we had last year by four points. But it's the record for the, a non-top four team. Yeah, exactly. So, but there were five teams that got seventy-five points or more, right? And that's the first time that's happened. It, it's so also the first the, time we got seventy-five points since like forever, like yeah. So what I don't know how many you? seasons. So what what's what's that telling you, right? That I used to rant about Arsenal not having to win in our cozy culture, which I still which I still will rant. But really, we're not the only of a cozy culture. You don't have to win to be successful. You get a hundred million pounds for coming seventeenth, right? So it doesn't matter. When you go down, you still get the parachute payments, you get ninety million the first year, you get forty eight million the second year. And so there's a huge amount of finance in the game that's actually taking away the ability 
to win. You don't have to win to be successful. I, f- I found myself sort of migrating towards American sports a lot lately and spending a lot of time watching the NBA. And the reason why, in the NBA, to be a, to be a great, you have to win that championship. Second place does not count. Nothing else counts. In the Premiership, you don't have to win. Manchester United have got the record revenues they've ever had. They haven't won the league for a few years. They're playing an average age of 20 team in the in Europa League. And they're, and they're, they're, they're a shadow they used to be. At Arsenal, we don't have to win. Because Arsenal are an investment vehicle. We're an investment vehicle first. We're not an on-the-pitch team first. We used to be. But now we're an investment vehicle. So all we need to be is a brand to be globally visible, to be at the top end of the game, and so our share price can double like it has done for Kroenke in the last sort of eight, nine years. Um, that's what we are. So we have a decision. What do we want to be? What do we want to be? Everybody on our board have had their money. They've all gone away with their share price. I read today that if Gazidis goes, he walks away with £5 million. So everyone's got their pensions all sorted out based on this one man. And I'm not going to... On Arsene Wenger, building this club to this level with some of the good decisions that he has made over the past. So I'm not a total cricket. I can see what he's done for those few people. Those few people have not shown the ambition for the many millions of people that want to see the club win. And while there's that separation, we're not going anywhere. We need to get joined up. So the hierarchy needs to change, and then the people need to change at the top level. And then we can look at the culture, because there's only two or three clubs in the Premiership that have a culture that say, we are judging ourselves on winning. And we're not one of them anymore. No, We are not one of them. I don't think it's a coincidence that those three clubs you're referencing are probably United, Chelsea, and City, um, yep. and they have all the money in the universe. But as a result, then you have to decide as Arsenal. See, this is where the governance gets difficult. Are you going to try to build good, solid, stable squads that can stay in the top four but can't compete for titles? Or are you going to roll the dice on big striker signings that you think can take you to the promised land, but equally if they go wrong or they get injured, the squad will be too too thin and and might drift out of the top four i mean is the goal to build a deep stable squad that can stay top four or is the goal to roll the dice on a few things and if it goes your way you're champions and if it doesn't go your way you may have a few years in the wilderness and i guess as fans we'd say we'll take four or five seasons in the wilderness if we're rolling the dice to try to roll you know snake eyes or whatever it is and win the title um that's yeah, and look, I don't know what that looks like. I mean, you could argue that signing Ozil and Alexis are those rolls of the dice, and they were excellent players, and we didn't get the most out of them because of one reason or another. Let, let's move on because there's a couple things we have to get to, and we're approaching the hour mark, which is more than most people can take for us. Um, I want to get each of your thoughts just on this really quickly. It doesn't look like the Usmanov thing is going to happen, but Paul, uh, he has been accused of some pretty horrendous things. How much do you care about the background um and reputation of the person who owns a team you support? Uh, a lot. And I want absolutely nothing to do with Usmanov on, on one side of me. On the other side of me, I'm starting to warm up to him. <laughs> I, well, right, look, you don't have to warm up to him. So, see, th- this is the question, right? Like, all right, if right, let's say we had a player who was a convicted rapist who got yeah. signed by Arsenal. I could not root for him. I could not cheer for him in the shirt. I could not bear the thought of him stepping onto the pitch because I root for players and I root for the manager. She had it coming. 
Oh, Jesus, Paul. <laughs> um, I really I, like this player, and he's scoring a lot of goals. Oh, well, there, don't, don't, you know what? Don't fret. There are a lot of people that would take that position if you follow the Chad Evans thing uh, on Twitter. Yeah, you can see there are some people that barbarically uh, will leap to the defense of any man in any situation, no matter how horrendous. But it, yeah. It's depressing. But the, really my point is ultimately that like, I don't think about Stan when I'm watching football. I mean, I was a, sport, a fan of American sports before I was a fan of Arsenal just because I grew up in America. And, like, I don't think I knew the names of the owners of the franchises I supported. And, you know, know, in football, you're much more aware of the ownership uh, because of the difference in the way the sport is governed and, and that you don't have salary caps and things like that. But as a result, I, I think I don't think about Stan when I'm watching Arsenal. And our, <laughs> Stan doesn't think about Arsenal while they're playing, so we have a lot in common. Um, but, you know, I mean, my point is, while I don't like him, I feel an attenuated relationship from that situation. I'm looking at the players. I'm looking at the manager. And so if Uzmanov were to own Arsenal, as much as I think he is a wretched individual based on the things he's been accused of, um, I, you know, I don't know if you can go through life today without patronizing the businesses of or being a customer of businesses that have some pretty serious blood on their hands. I mean, if you put gas in your car... Odds are you're doing that. Um, you're putting blood in your car. You're putting blood in your car. Yeah, you're putting the blood of dinosaurs in your car, quite literally. Yeah. Um, or the decomposed bodies of dinosaurs. Anyway, uh, Clive, just really quickly, I mean, how important is it to you that the person who owns Arsenal is an upstanding, uh, morally upright individual? I think, um, you know, I did I did sort of criticize the Arsenal way, what it's become, but it's one of the reasons why I support Arsenal, because of the way we operate. I think it's it is unique. We've become a little bit contrary, as I said, but it is unique. The words class always associated to Arsenal football. I'm not sure how I feel about this, but you know, equally not equally. Sorry, because I, I I'm not an expert on Usmanov's character, to be honest, and I'm I'm not an expert on on Kroenke. I know a little bit about what he's done, what he does in America. I know a little bit about what's happened around the um, LA Rams situation, etc. But you know, we're we're fed different stories about different people. So I'm I'm not an expert, but does it matter to me? I tell you what, I I just want to see a new model at Arsenal. So I I don't want us to be an investment anymore. I want us to be a football club again. I want us to care about what goes on the green grass, and that's the most important thing. If we show that desperation to build our brand on winning and not competing at the top level. That's what I want to see. Mm-hmm. Not winning at all costs. I'm not going to say, oh, if we don't win anything, I'm not going to support them all the rest of it. But you can tell when there's an ambition. You can tell when there's finite details being done. You can tell by the, even the ages of the people in our club. It's not being ageist. I'm not young myself. But there's there needs to be fresh ideas. When Bayern Munich bought Pep Guardiola in, they brought him in. One of the main reasons, they knew it was a three-year cycle. One of the main reasons they brought him in was to basically bring new ideas into the club. They made sure all their young coaches could spend time with him, learn how he operated. And now all those ideas are within the club. They are there being used and utilised for many years to come for the people left behind. There needs to be a real focus on the football. At the moment, it just feels like we're just a business first and a football club second. Yeah. And uh, I'd like to see that change. I mean, look, let's say we're not going to become the plaything of, of an ultra-rich billionaire who wants to just, you know, spend money the way Abramovich does or, or Sheikh Mansour for a second, right? Hooray. 
Okay, well, then here's That's the reality. That's my vote. If you put in a director of football and you put in the right structures on the technical side to yes. uh, organize the, the club appropriately with mo- a modern approach to management and you are focused on what your goals are and transparent with, with the fans about what your goals are, and if you're transparent about what the resources are that the club has, then it shouldn't matter who owns the club, right? If the club Agreed. is willing to reinvest all of its available revenue or profits into the, the footballing side of the business— and the structures Amen, are in brother. place to, to run the club appropriately in a, in a contemporary fashion, the owner shouldn't matter. I mean, I get it. Look, it may require having a, a oligarch who sees the club as a plaything to compete year in, year out. But at a minimum, I just think if you're clear with, with the fans on what your goals are, what your resources are, and then you put the structures in place, the owner shouldn't matter. And I think in an ideal world, look— Arsenal's never going to be owned have, by the fans again. You'd have again. to say Spurs are doing a pretty damn good of, uh, job of showing how that model should work for the last two years. Yeah, I, I think they have, and I think a big part of it is they, they got the manager right finally, and it took them long enough. But but you know what, Paul? Like, If the structures are in place properly and, and those structures are allowed to operate the way they need to, in an ideal world, because you're never going to have fan ownership again and all that, that ship sailed, in an ideal world... The owner shouldn't matter. You shouldn't even have to know who the owner is because the club should be set up to succeed. Um, two quick things I want to get to, uh, uh, and we're going to run long. So congratulations, everybody. You're getting bonus bonus Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Um, Clive, stay with you for a second. What would be your approach to Europa League next season? Oh, I see. I, I, by, by the I way, would, Clive, would... let me just say this. We've been having a little bit of challenge with your internet, so if I cut across you, don't be offended. It's because I, I deemed okay. that it had reached a point where it needed to be salvaged. But, yeah, go ahead. What what would you do with it? I would I would throw it. I would throw it away. That's what I would do. I, I want to focus Play on the, the kids. Yeah, I want to focus on the league. I, I, I would throw it away as soon as possible and focus on the league and making sure that we have a real challenge. The last two league winners weren't in Europe, so we got a chance. So I would I would throw it immediately. Don't need it. Okay, what about you, Paul? Same thing? I'd play the kids. <laughs> We'd end up in the semifinals and have to go the whole way. Uh, so, but, yeah. Okay, so, so let me just give a, a contrarian perspective. And, and in a way, I know I'm being a little bit contrarian about this. I'm not sure I even agree with then this. Then don't do it. I, well, don't I kind of it, agree with you guys that if you chuck it, that probably gives you the best chance in the league. But I'm going to go another direction for a second. Let's say Arsene Wenger stays, okay? We're not winning the league next season, even without Europa League. We're not. I just don't see it. I don't think we're there. I don't think we're close enough. But we could win the Europa League. And winning the Europa League gets you back in the Champions League, which we know is one of our minimum goals anyway. There's every bit of the chance that we can't get past United City, Chelsea, Liverpool, Spurs next season again anyway, even without Europa League. So if you chuck it, and you have a boring season in the league where you're kind of on the edge of finishing fourth or fifth, who the fuck cares about that? We've been there, and it's boring, and nobody likes it. But if you go for the Europa League, it's something different. It's a European trophy. It's something we can add to the trophy cabinet, and it can get us into Champions League. Now, I'm not saying we would win it just for going for it, but my point is, at the moment that you say, I don't think we can win the title with this manager or this squad, why chuck the Europa League? You're basically okay, so, admitting at that so, point that your season's down and trying to come top four anyway. Yeah, I, good points made. I think the problem with that is the measure of who you are as a club is the league. That's your best feedback. And if you cheat on that feedback loop, then you, the manager, the club, you know, if we get into the Champions League through winning the Europa League, but we're still shit by 
by your analysis, that hasn't actually done us any favors. No, I get that. But, uh, but, but, but Paul, a, a couple things just really quickly. I mean, I'm not saying try to win the Europa League and chuck the league, right? I mean, it is theoretically possible with the resources we have and the squad we have that you survive and have a decent league campaign also. I'm just saying if you are committed to the belief that we cannot win the league next season, chucking the Europa League basically says I'm totally fine with our season boiling down to another Groundhog Day top four battle, which, like, I have no appetite. I mean, the one thing that's kept these Groundhog Day top four battles survivable for me is having those midweek Champions League games, and granted, not as many of them as we would like and not as many good ones, but, like, that's been something. You chuck the Europa League, and suddenly it's like, Really? We're just going to root for, like, beating Swansea, you know, on on a Saturday so that we can try to finish fourth? Like I, I guess I always feel the league is the measure of who you are. And if you cheat on that feedback mechanism, you just got to go balls out for the league. Yeah, because you're, you're saying then how do you measure where you are as a club? I, how do I you think measure where you're at? I think, I think the league is becoming the most important. The only, time, the only time you don't that you cheat a little bit on the league is if you suddenly have the chance to win the Champions League. That's that's when I throw that away. Cla- Sorry, Clive. Clive. Yeah, go ahead. No, the, the Premiership Saturdays, right? They're, they're, they're almost like FA Cup semi-finals every week. They're becoming events. They really are. They are events now every single week. And I, I just don't think that there's nothing more important than that. There just, there just isn't. But what if you're staring down the battle of another top four, like another ho-hum, we're sixth, we're fifth, we're fourth, that's where we are all season. Like, if you're staring down the barrel of that, you wouldn't have any interest in trying to win the Europa League? It depends on many things, right? So, I'll give you another scenario. Say, for example, Wenger leaves, we we get Allegri to come in, and he says, you know what, I'm focused on the league we would all just be quiet and say, go on then, yes, let's see what yes, you've got. Yes, you know, and, yes. um, and so it depends on lots of different things. In the current scenarios, then it's a different discussion maybe. But me personally, Manchester United spent over £250 million on their squad. They've probably got the deepest squad in, in the whole of England. And they struggled to manage these games with the injuries. And the last time I looked... Not that great with injuries, Arsenal. Right? So, oh, we're, it's a, what it's are you talking about? We're fantastic at, at getting injuries. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hugely taxing competition, and I don't see the benefit of it for okay. me. Um, the, the money side of it's going up. I think Manchester United get about twenty million. I think if we win the FA Cup on Saturday, we get one point eight million. I think they're distributing and that to course, the fans, actually. So that's good news. <laughs> On the day, yeah, you need that much to get hot dogs, right? So, um, so yeah, it's 1.8 million is what you get for winning the FA Cup. 900,000 for being a runner up. So, it, I'm afraid well, we, we, football is the business now, right? So, you need to get higher up the premiership place as much as you can, and you need to show in the league. That's the thing for me that's most important. And I would, I'm with Paul on this. I'll play the youngsters in the Europa League and see where we Totally get it. To. Look, like I said, I know I'm being a little contrarian. I think what I'm saying is if Arsene Banger stays. I'm so desperate for something different that maybe the Europa League would be that thing that would at least engage me in a way that, that these top four league campaigns are starting to lose me a little bit. Um, all right, final thing. It is a cup final at the weekend. It is going to be tough picking the squad because we have doubts over Alexis and Shaka and Mustafi and um, Gabrielle and, and Koscielny's out. But here's what I'm going to ask you. Who's your lineup? Who, who, who is your starting 11, Paul? Just real quick, assuming... Yep. Mustafi, Shaka, and Alexis can play. 
And I'm not asking you who the manager will pick. I'm saying you give me an 11. Uh, Check-in goal, which is a big deal. Uh, I'm still not convinced it won't be Ospina. I think it all comes down to the back three and where you play Monreal, because I want Monreal as left wing back. Uh, My back three, uh, I had an argument with with Gunnar Davis 66 about this one. Well, a discussion anyway. Um, To make it work, I need Bellerin in there as my right centre-back, Mustafi central and Rob Holding on the left. Uh, he raised a good point about uh, Purr hasn't got the legs to play on, on that Wembley turf for 90 minutes. Um, and so my gamble, because I think you've got to gamble somewhere if you want to play Monreal on the left, otherwise you're going to have to play Gibbs there, who's been at best okay. And I think we need more than okay. I think we need Monreal to be better than Chelsea on the day. We need Monreal on the left working with Alexis and Ozil and co. Uh, I'd put Ox on the right and Bellerin behind him at the right center back, which is a gamble. But they got lots of pace and they and Bellerin's handled uh, Hazard before. And so that's my gamble. Chak and Ramsey in the middle and the usual up front. Okay. Uh, what about you, Clive? Who are you going with? <laughs> right, let's call some let's call some ruptures now. All right, so for me, it's not just a team you start with; it's a team you finish with. Right, so this is a team I would start with, but more importantly, it's how you finish and what. You, you know that Arsenal Arsenal play is. has to play the whole game. Like we can't finish with like Manchester. City. Yeah, I know, but I don't. I I would uh, I would uh, you know I've been on speed later on, for example. So I would start with Per in the centre of a back three. And I, I agree with you, Paul. Monreal has to stay wing back. He's just so important to our progression on the pitch. Right. So I would start with Per, Mustafi and Holding, Mustafi to the right, Holding to the left, Per in the middle. I would start with Bellerin. I would actually <laughs> I would actually start with Coquelin and Shaka if my central midfield too. I would then I would then play Alexis with Urzel. <laughs> with Ozil and Ramsey as the two supporting. And that's how I would start the game. And then I would bring on the Ox into centre midfield. I would bring on Welbeck to centre forward and take and take maybe um take maybe Ramsey out depending on who's one of the, which one of the three is not playing well. And I would bring on the speed later on in the game and to really to really take them in the last twenty five minutes. But I would start compact, I would start quite deep and I would progress up the field with midfielders, small combinations, staying close in distance so we can't get broken upon. That's how I would start the game. But I, as the game gets wider and the pitch gets bigger, I would then bring on our big space runners to take advantage of that. I like that. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a problem with that. I, I think what I would do is uh, I'd play check. I'd play Bellerin at right wing back. I would go with uh, Mustafi... Um, Murdasacker and uh, Holding. I would not in that order, but well, basically in that order, yeah. Uh, and then Nacho at left wing back. I agree with you guys. I think we're going to wind up playing Gibbs, and I think that's going to be where the game may be lost, unfortunately. Uh, I would play Rams, uh, pardon me, uh, Shaka, and so this is where it depends. I think if Oxlade Chamberlain is fit, I'd play Shaka, Ramsey, Ox, Ozil, and Alexis up front. If he's not fit, I would play Chaka Ramsey, Iwobi, Ozil, and Alexis up front. I know that's not what he's going to do. That's what I would do. I'm still not yeah. convinced we can 
dominate a game defensively against the really good teams. But I think we can give them all kinds of problems if we line up that way. Um, I still think Danny Welbeck is a threat and he causes problems for the opposition, but I'm not convinced that he will necessarily produce the goods in the moment when it's needed, and I still would love to see Alexis in that in that up-front position. But assuming he's not going to do that, then I would go Shaka, Ramsey, Alexis, Ozil, and Welbeck. Um, and, and we'll see. We'll see what it comes down to. What I would not do, and this is going to come as a surprise to you guys, probably wouldn't start Francis Cochran. Not going to do that. <laughs> All right, guys, look, it's uh, it's FA Cup final, so let's put away the Arsene Wenger thing. Let's put away the transfer speculation thing. Let's put away the ownership thing. Gosh, we have a lot of things hanging over us, don't we? <laughs> uh, after the FA Cup final, we will the talk about... The Club of Damocles. It will, and we still have all those contracts that, that are up for renewal. It's going to be a banana summer. So here's what we'll do. We'll do a, a pod after the Cup final to celebrate the, the victory and Arsene Wenger becoming the all-time... Uh, winningest FA Cup manager. Um, then what we'll do is we'll probably let the dust settle, see if they make an announcement about the manager, any contracts, things like that. We'll do a, a season review pod where we speculate at what the summer will hold and look back on the season. And then we'll probably do some kind of emergency pod once um, any announcements are made or, or major things change. So still a lot of pods ahead, I am sorry to report. Anyway, it's Cup Final on Saturday, so I hope wherever you are, whether you're going to the stadium, whether you're watching at home, whether you're going to the pub, your local, your bar with friends, whether you're streaming uh, with porn on one side of the screen and, and the game on the other, uh, I, I hope it is a wonderful day for you that you celebrate it with people you care about and that at the end of the day we have something to celebrate that makes this season that we just put up with worthwhile. In any event, Paul's on Twitter at Pause in My Pants. Thanks, Paws. Pleasure. Clive's on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. My name is Alex Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Give us a five-star review and write nasty things about Tim. Tim in the comments of the review because he's not here. Pick on the guy who's not here. Anyway, uh, I hope you really enjoy your Saturday, everybody, and that we have a, a wonderful celebration afterwards. Um, and Jack Wilshire can come join it and sing his Tottenham songs all he wants. Anyway, until then, cheers up the Arsenal. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.